Now, if you have God's Word in front of you, and if you don't, I invite you to find it. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking this evening at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. To dispel any myths... I am not on my way to Afghanistan or anything like that, contrary to anything that you've been told at the present. Of course, who knows, the Lord might lead us there too. Uh, but um, for now, I'm here. Uh, my wife and I will be serving in Christians, teaching Christians uh, here from home. Uh, Lord willing, travel abroad a couple times a year, uh, that kind of thing. But we are here in Moore, South Carolina. My credentials are still held here with Calvary Presbyterian. and we're looking and praying uh, that you will partner with us in that great work. But for this evening, that's my only plug, don't worry. For this evening, let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. This passage is well known to many of you, I'm sure. It's known as the Great Commission. Although the Bible nowhere calls it the Great Commission. However, as we know, it is great. Both its scope and weight and significance. Charles Spurgeon writes of this passage, Oh, I would that the church could hear the Savior addressing these words to her now. For the words of Christ are living words. Not having power in them yesterday alone, but today also. The injunctions of the Savior are perpetual in their obligation. They were not binding upon merely apostles, but upon us also. And upon every Christian does this yoke fall. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We are not exempt today. We are not exempt today from the service of the first followers of the Lamb. Our marching orders are the same as theirs. And our captain requires from us obedience as prompt and perfect as from them. Oh, that his message may not fall upon deaf ears or be heard by uninterested souls. Spurgeon continues, and I know this is lengthy, but stay with me. Spurgeon continues, Brethren, the heathen are perishing. Shall we let them perish? His name is blasphemed. Shall we be quiet and still? The honor of Christ is cast into the dust, and his foes revile his person, and resist his throne. Shall we, his soldiers, suffer this? And not find our hands feeling for the hilt of our sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our Lord delays His coming. Shall we begin to sleep, or to eat, or to be drunken? Shall we not rather gird up our loins, the loins of our mind, and cry unto Him, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Close quote. Again, our reading for the evening comes from Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 16 through, uh, 
16 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand again, please, for the reading of, of God's Word. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. You'll find that my translation of this passage may be different than yours to some degree. With a new call came a new urge to study missions and cross-cultural missions and other things. And I dusted out my old Wallace Greek textbooks and other things. Uh, but listen closely as we read God's Word. Matthew 28. So the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where appointed them Jesus. And seeing Him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And approaching, Jesus talked with them, saying, Was given to me all authority in heaven and on earth. Going, therefore, disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all things whatever I gave command to you. And behold, I with you am all the days into the completion of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for the reading of it. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, this is a familiar passage to many of us, and there's a danger in speaking on a passage that's so familiar to so many. We have the tendency to believe that we've heard it all. We have, there's the danger of checking out, if you will. I've heard this, I can fill in the blanks, I know where he's going, I know what he's going to say, or perhaps even begin to argue with the presenter at the beginning of, of what he's going to say. But there's a real danger when we come to a passage that's so familiar to all of us to not really pay attention and listen closely to what's being offered. I would urge you... To fight against that urging this evening. What we have before us are Jesus' directives to the church. What we have before us in this passage is Jesus' directives to the church. The church's marching orders. The mission and method, I would argue, of the church in service of Christ in crown. This is way more than what has become just the Great Commission. What we have here before us, as I said, is Christ's directives to His church. The method, and or the mission and the method of the church in service of Christ and crown. Pause and ask yourself this evening this question. Am I obeying Christ's directives to His church? Are we, as part of the visible church, are we remembering our marching orders? Ask yourself, does our ministry reflect the mission and method of our Lord Jesus Christ? What about the Great Commission? My fear this evening, and this is what I present to you, my argument is this. My fear is that we have taken what was intended to be the ordinary and made it the extraordinary. My fear is that we have taken what Christ has given us here in this passage to be ordinary. 
and the establishment of His kingdom and made it extraordinary for other people. Those guys. Those special guys. You know, those crazy guys like that Buckner guy who talks to people in Pakistan. Doesn't he know they have bombs? Doesn't he know they could, I don't know, cyberspace web attack me or I don't even know what it is. Ignorance is all right sometimes, right? My youngest daughter says, Dad, they're just setting you up over there. They're setting me up to set Jesus up too. Let's roll with this and see what happens. But we've taken that which Christ intended to be ordinary. And if we look closely at the gospel narrative, what I love about picking Matthew to do this is that when we take Matthew, we can turn to the right and argue that the mission and the method are the same. We can turn to the left and go back to the old covenant and see the establishment of the mission and the method. And we've taken what God has given us as the ordinary, if you will, and made it extraordinary. It's for other people. That mission stuff, that's for other people. The second thing that bothers me about that is, well, we're into church planting. I would argue with you that any mission that's not into church planting is not a mission. Amen. Somebody, please. That any world mission at its core, in essence, has to have within it the idea of planting and establishing the church. Why? Because that's the ordinary method that Christ has given us. So, don't, I, I, I want, I'm going to argue probably for the rest of my life until the Lord tarries because one trip to Africa changed my whole worldview, my whole view of Scripture, everything. That we can't separate the church from mission. If we separate church from mission and mission from church, we have neither. And when we take mission, and we look at mission today, and it's big business, right? It takes a lot of money to do what people do. When we look at mission, we should never, never separate the method establishing Christian in, in, in God's word, sorry, in God's word from our attempt to fulfill the mission. You see, his method's the same today, yesterday, and forever. And that's what we see here in this passage. So my argument is this. What I would like you to do is ask yourself that simple question. Is our church engaged in the mission? I would argue with you, if your church isn't engaged in the mission, you're not a church. The church takes on many facets. But one thing I know is a mark of the church is the mission. How is it? Well, it applies the method of the mission. The proclamation of the word, the administration of the sacraments, church discipline. Right? And so we go. So ask yourself these questions. And I really only want to uh, share one point with you this, morning, uh, this evening. I haven't preached in the morning in a long time. But uh, this evening. But I want you to keep those thoughts in your mind. As we go through here a little bit. And we see that what Christ calls us to do in this passage. Ought to be the general practice. What Christ calls us to do 
in this passage ought to be the general practice of every Christian and every church in the world. Let's set the scene here just a little bit. You, you get where we're at. You're familiar with the, the, the passage, the death of Christ that occurred on the cross. It's that day, that glorious day when our Lord rose from the grave. Beautiful things are happening. And I want you to take note where this occurs in the Gospel of Matthew. It occurs where? In the middle of Matthew? Now, oh, come on, Pastor Todd. Or I'm still a pastor, right? Uh, occur at the beginning? No, it occurs at the end. I think there's significance there. What Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to do is to be thinking about this at the conclusion of reading his gospel. Now balance that off of how Matthew starts his gospel account. How does Matthew start his gospel account? With the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. And we're immediately drawn back even into the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So you see rather quickly in my argument that the method of Christ's mission in the church has been established long, long before this great commission was given. And it's a beautiful thing. But that being said, I want us to focus our attention, and now I'm down to three minutes, on something that's often overlooked. And go back with me and look at verse 16, if you will. We read these words. Now the eleven disciples, notice the eleven, went to Galilee. They went to Galilee, the mount that Jesus told them to go to. Jesus told them to go. He'd meet them there. And they went. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And 17, look at 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. When they saw him, the text tells us, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. I love that. You know how many times I've read this pericope, this narrative, this recording here in scripture, and you just blow right by that little phrase. They worshipped him. And then we jump to them, but some doubted. And we spend all of our time in that arena. Some doubted. We blow right by the fact that we're told they were commanded to go to this mountain. And mountains are significant in gospel, in Matthew's gospel as well as scripture. And not that they're special in and of themselves, but mountains are a place in which God reveals himself over and over again throughout scripture and even in the New Testament, we see Jesus and his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in 5, 6, and 7, right? So they're there. I think it was a familiar place for them. And they worshipped, the text tells us. They worshipped. Here's the point I want to establish and the one I want to drive home with you this evening. It's this. The Great Commission is given in the context of worship. The Great Commission is given in the context of worship. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mount to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. When Jesus' followers encountered him after the resurrection, they fell down and worshipped him. And his commission, and then he commissioned them 
to fulfill his mission in making disciples and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. The commission's giving in the context of worship. Look, at, look again closely at what we're told. There's the eleven. Jesus, Judas had betrayed our Lord. And they go to this mountain. And Jesus told them to go. And then we're told that they worship him. Now look back with me at verses 7 through 10 of Matthew 28. 7 through 10. You, I'm going to trust you get the, the layout here. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Here's the command. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The women worshipped. The disciples worshipped. The Great Commission is given in the context of worship. Now, contrary to modern evangelicalism, and I use that term loosely if you'll permit me to do so, worship's not just simply giving lip service. It's not just simply mouthing words. It's not for your entertainment. It's not to tickle your ears. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. We in the Reformed Church are often criticized, aren't we? The only, only thing you people talk about is sin and how wretched we are. And, oh, no, 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 that's not fair. That's like charging the Reformers without being mission-minded, which is also false. That's not true. We go to great lengths to reveal our depravity in order to lift, if you will, before the same very people... The grace and mercy of Christ Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection. So worship's not about you. I want you to notice something about this passage. We've taken something that's been given to be ordinary and made it extraordinary. And here's why. And here's the reason I think we suffer in that regard. We think it's actually about us. The entire passage. Who is the focus of the entire passage? Is it you? Is it the disciples? Is it the commission? Or is it the risen Lord who's being worshipped? I'd argue with you from the text. But the focus of the passage is on Christ. And Christ alone. As he employs people like you and me in the fulfillment of his mission through his method. So worship's not lip service. It's not simply mouthing words. It's not, well, we got up this morning and we went to church. Check. Richard won't call this week. Where's Richard? Richard won't call this week because I was here. Right? Zach won't bother me because I came. 
Remember that time we missed, honey? Zach was on the phone three times that week. We went, said, that's not worship. That's not worship, people. It's not lip service. It's not checking a box. Text tells us, and we can see this clearly in the original, we can see this when we look at Scripture as a whole, that when the disciples came and were told that they worshiped, they fell down on their knees. They were face down, if you will, in the dirt. And when we see and we study Scripture closely, we see that when anyone encounters God, whether it be in the Old Covenant, the New Testament, we see them immediately fall on their faces in worship. I love the text with the ladies we just read. They were at his feet. And they worshipped him. Now we come to this text in which Christ will commission his disciples, if you will, if you will which includes you and me, people like you and me. Because if you don't believe in the grace of God, look around the room. He uses people like you and me to fulfill his mission as we employ his method, right? That's not good news. I think it is. They fall down and they worship him. You see, over and over again, as I said, when we study scripture closely, when God comes, when he appears, really even in Old Testament theophanies and the appearance of the angel of the, of, of the Lord, as well as in the New Testament, with the risen Lord, over and over again, we see those that have a proper understanding of the holiness and majesty of the triune God fall on their face in His presence. When's the last time you walked into church and fell on your face? When's the last time you were in worship on your knees? You see, when we encounter God, when anybody encounters God, we can't just address Him casually. Giving what I call, Zach can understand, he's from Philly, over Pittsburgh, you know, the cool, the cool guy now, Zach, right? That's it, right there. And what's up? We want to encounter God, walk up to God, what's up, God? Uh, a little old for that, but it's exactly how it goes. Or what, here's a better one. Here's what we do now. The fist bump, right? You know, guys used to... Remember back in the day before COVID, guys used to shake your hand, you know, and they wanted to show you how manly they were and they stuck out their big paw and they give you the real shake, the, hit, the man handshake, try to break your hand off, right? Now we're doing the cool guy fist bump. Guys are walking around, they're showing you their fist back here. Where I come from, that's drawing. I don't know whether to fight you or fist bump you, so live at your own risk, right? And then we bump hands and we're gonna see who can put it's all oh, someone playing bloody knuckles. We interact with God like that. Scripture shows us clearly when we encounter the living God. The thrice holy righteous God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, we should be brought low. We should fall to our faces and we should worship Him with our entire being. When was the last time you worshiped God with your entire being? 
I thought this guy was going to come tonight, ask us for money, and tell us about CTC. Not make us feel bad about our worship. But you see, as I've transitioned and I've looked into the mission and the method of God, I've only been convicted of my own worship and lack of it. God should be worshipped with a holy reverence. We should come before Him in His presence with fear and trembling on our faces. Humble. Bold. Courageous. But humble. <laughs> Not like we're meeting our buddy on the street. Each Lord's Day, corporately, what do we do? Why do you go to the house of the Lord? I pray to worship. <laughs> to worship with like-minded people. Wholeheartedly. With our entire being and soul on our faces. As we hear the good news of Jesus Christ and His life, death, and resurrection. And now what he's doing in and through the church. So the Great Commission is given in the context of worship. Could we not argue that if you're not participating in the ordinary, the Great Commission, you're not actually worshiping the Lord? Could we not? The kingdom's bigger than Roebuck. It's bigger than Antioch. It's bigger than Reedville. I miss his head. It's bigger than that. So I've argued, and I think I've established clearly from Scripture that this is given in the context of worship. I've also suggested to you that the mission has been the mission from the very beginning. And as we looked at why this is here in Matthew, when we thought about the genealogy given in one, I want to take you back even a little bit further and have you consider what's known as the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter 1. If you would, turn back there with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We read these words. First, let me say this. Do you realize that creation exists not, to, not for us to serve creation. Do you realize that creation exists not for us to actually serve or worship creation? Creation exists to serve us. First, we're told clearly that God creates all things. And as we look at the disciples and the ladies on that day, and we see them worshiping the risen Lord, Christ Jesus, we see them doing exactly what you and I were created to do in the first place. And then we 
come to understand as we read Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, we read. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. We see clearly that creation doesn't exist for us to serve creation or worship creation. We understand that all things were created, including us, to worship and reflect the glory and holiness of His Creator, or our Creator, the God of the universe. Here's a newsflash for a lot of Christians. You know, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. There was nothing lacking in the Godhead, was there? Was there joy lacking in the Godhead? Was God missing anything? Was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were they lacking anything in that perfect communion or community in which was established in them? No. The misconception is God created us because He needed us. The truth of the matter is, God doesn't need us. God created people like you and me, humanity, human beings, men and women like you and me, because He wanted us. Think about that. He wanted us. He didn't need us for anything. He didn't need us because He was lacking anything. He created us because He wanted us. And what did He want us to do, namely? What did He create us to do, namely? Worship Him. Worship Him. Us, created in His image, created to reflect back to our Creator, that image which He imparted to us in order that we would glorify Him, in order that we would worship Him, in order that we would fall down and bow before Him. That's why we were created. How are we doing? How are we doing in our worship? I would argue today we spend more time worshiping the creation. Worshiping that which He's given us. Now, we're commanded to be good stewards, right? To go green. There's something in my house now. Recycling. What are they called? Cans. Tins. I don't know. I'm supposed to be recycling now, okay? So there's a little thing, if you know my wife, this is hilarious. There's a little thing printed out on the computer. Todd, put this stuff in this can. Everything else goes in that can. It doesn't say Todd, but it's intended for Todd. I know it is. Right? Paper that has, you know, plastic, gotta be clean, plastic, Listen, I'm looking for a clean hard bowl. I'm not looking for clean plastic stuff. We have plenty of clean bowls. He yeah. put it in here. And the next time I see my wife and God love her, she has 30 years of this, me telling stories on herself. Um, we're still married though, praise God. <laughs> the next thing I know, we're, we're rinsing off paper plates. Captain, that ain't happening in my house. Listen, I'm all for a green earth. No, I'm just kidding. For the peace and quietness of my home. 
I would do that. But, and we don't do that because we worship that. We do that to bring me in a little bit. But see, there's all that going on right now, isn't there? Mother Earth, Father Moon, <laughs> Cousin Sun, I don't know. No, 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 no. Genesis 1 28 is clear that was given for us in order that our worship of its creator might be enhanced and increased, right? Don't worship the created thing. The lesson's over and over again with idolatry, right? Worship the creator. And so the Great Commission is given in the context of that. And when I consider the method, I, I consider this. The method's been the same and is the same. Or the mission has been the same since in, from Genesis to Revelation and now beyond. It's not the mission, God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's not the mission, been that God himself call a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Has that not always been the deal? When did it change? Genesis 12 is a good place to start. But let's go to Genesis 3 with the promise, the gospel in seed form. And we see it clearly. Let's go to the covenant of redemption in eternity past. We see is it not? Always been the plan. Now, infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism, whatever. What I'm getting at here is this. God has always been about the worship of His holiness through a people He's created and now redeemed through His Son. He's always been about calling a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I ask you, have you taken that which was intended to be ordinary and made it extraordinary for somebody else? Last point. Some doubt it. I'll give you just a little bit of that. This is a five-part mini-series. This isn't a Sunday night deal, but just a little bit of that. Okay? Some doubt it, it says. Now, y'all can fill in whatever you believe there. Comment, uh, commentaries say a number of things about someone. I like what Lincoln Duncan says the best. They wrote it because it's true. Some doubted, and they wrote it because it's true. Were they doubting because we could assume that Jesus was far off and they weren't quite sure it was Jesus yet? Or, or then you get into all this. Well, they you know, they got Pentecost coming and all the stuff. Fill in the blank for your life. The one I like was this. They wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it's true. And what we know about people like you and me is we doubt. And they were going to be given a big, big job to do. It was going to be revealed to them. They were going to understand fully. And if they don't now, they're going to, when the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost, and they're called to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? And the establishment of the church. Through the proclamation of the word, administration of the sacraments, church discipline, the king's always been the same. Some doubt it exists. And as I said, I like what Lincoln Duncan says. He wrote it because it's true, because Christians doubt. 
We struggle sometimes, don't we? We struggle sometimes to think, what part can I have in something as great as the Great Commission? That's for somebody else. Some doubt it because, and I believe this is true, we doubt because to participate in what I would say is God's program entails sacrifice. To be part of the mission of God, you're either going to have to go, send, or support. You have to give up something, right? The greatest commandment is basically love God. The second is like it, love your neighbor, right? Love God and love others. Let me tell you this, if you won't walk across the street, if you won't go across the street, you'll never fly around the world. If you're not willing to send someone across the street, you'll never send someone around the world. If you're not willing to support someone who wants to walk across the street, you'll never support anyone crazy enough to travel around the world. They take sacrifice. I leave you with this thought. If my handling of Scripture is accurate, and I pray that it is, and anything that isn't, I pray you never recall if my handling of Scripture is true, what greater sacrifice could there have been made for the mission than God the Father sending His only begotten Son to live a life of perfect obedience on behalf of people like you and me, to hang on a tree for the sinfulness and ugliness of people like you and me and to justify us in his resurrection. What greater sacrifice could be made? Question, what are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to go across the street? Are you willing to support somebody who does? Will you send somebody Father our God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word and for its truth in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we pray that we would indeed hear it clearly. And act upon it with our whole being. Father, we confess that we don't worship you as we ought. That we struggle and fight to get through a 35-minute message. That we whine and complain about the music being too fast, too slow. That we complain, Lord, about our neighbor to the left and to the right. Father, grant us hearts that we might be able to focus with our whole being... <laughs> Focus upon you. Lord, teach us to fall on our knees. Fall on our faces. 
Father, dispel this idea that what was ordinary in Scripture is an extraordinary thing. You have called every individual in this room to task. Whether it be through going, sending, or supporting. Father, give us eyes bigger than our own little kingdoms. Show us the greatness of your church. We ask this in everything in Christ's name. Amen.